So last week we jumped into our series through 1 Corinthians. It had been a while, but we're back. We're back in that series. And this morning we're going to consider chapter 3, the passage that Heather just read for us. Our series theme, if you've not been with us, is this, gospel formed, meaning becoming who we are, united family in a fractured city. Gospel formed, becoming who we are, united family in a fractured city. Now, the church in Corinth was, was not gospel formed. Rather, the church was shaped and influenced more by the cultural values of her city than she was by the values of the gospel. The culture of this church was so bad that the church's culture was almost indistinguishable from the culture at large. It was, it was bad. The culture of this church was almost indistinguishable from the culture of this fractured city. And so this reality completely undermined the purpose of Christ's church in the city. The church, God's family, exists to display the beauty of the gospel to a broken people. That's why we exist. We exist to display the faithfulness of Christ to a fractured city. But this church was divided. I mean, like, relationally divided. It was broken. It was toxic. It was not a place that you would want to anymore. It was full of unhealthy relationships. It was bad. And this church was divided just like the city. She was fracturing because she was shaped by the culture and not the gospel. She had nothing beautiful to display to a broken city and a breaking people. And that's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And it's also why we have this letter of 1 Corinthians. This letter is a gift. If we will receive it, And if we will submit to it as our Father's Word to us, we can and we will become who God says that we are in Jesus, a united family in a fractured city or fractured culture. Guys, we exist to be a a light in a dark culture. That's that's why we exist. We exist to, to speak life into a culture of death. We exist to be advocates for mercy and justice in a merciless culture and in a culture where systemic injustices abound. That's why we exist. Picture, if you will, a dark city. All the lights out. Every light out. Gone. A neighborhood. Your neighborhood on Kadena, in Jennings, at nighttime, completely dark, with just one house with the lights on. One house. Guys, that's the church in our broken, in our broken world. That's God's design. Picture a broken neighborhood with every door shuttered, every, every house closed up, and every family huddling inside uh, to take care of themselves and their own. Now picture one house in that broken neighborhood with not only the doors wide open inviting people into the family, into the life of the family. Are those for me? They're not for me. Okay. They are for me. All right. So that one house with a door. For the good of the people who exist there. That's why the church exists. But when our culture is indistinguishable from the culture around us, we fail to live up to any of those realities. What have we learned so far about becoming who our Father says that we are? We've only been in 1 Corinthians for a little bit. Here's what we've learned. They'll be up on the screen for you. First, in chapter 1, we learned this. Becoming who we are begins with knowing and living from who our Father says we are. So we've got to start with what our dad says about us. Second, becoming who we are begins with looking to Jesus as our source, as our sustainer, and our Savior. Basically everything. We look to Jesus for everything. 
The minute we look away from Jesus for anything, we fail to become who we are. We will become fractured. Becoming who we are begins with uniting around Jesus, not dividing around our favorite people or podcasts or pet theology. Becoming who we are happens as we learn to brag on the better words and works of Jesus. Not on ourselves, not on our church, not on this, this pastor or that pastor, but bragging on the better words and works of Jesus. And then we moved into chapter 2 where we learned that becoming who we are happens as we turn from the wisdom of the world and we live instead in the power of the wisdom of God. That is, the Gospel. So we turn from the wisdom of this world and we turn toward the wisdom of God. Uh, David, thanks again last week for bringing that word to us from the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. And here's what we see this morning in chapter 3. Um, this, so this is kind of our, our theme for today. Becoming who we are happens as we take a high view of the church and a humble view of self. That's our, that's our sermon summary for today. We will be a united family in a fractured city only, only when we take a high view of the church and a humble view of ourselves. Marines, I boiled it down to four words for you. Uh, you can pull out your crayons. Actually, we do have bags of crayons in the back. They're for the kids, but we just wrote it that way so nobody would be offended. Um, high church, humble self, right? Like if, if, if we need something to hang it on, what we're going to learn today, high church, humble self, okay? Army, two words, high and humble. It was high and humble, okay? So we're all good, high and humble. We become who we are, a united family in a fractured city, only when we take a high view of the church and a humble view of, of ourselves. Now, let me, let me show you where that big idea is in our text so you see that I'm not just making it up so I have some sentence to say up here. It's actually right in the heart of our passage in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16 went like this. Guys, or family, don't you know or don't you remember? You do remember, right? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul's asking this question confrontationally. There's a little bit of a rebuke in here. Uh, basically, he's asking, have, have you guys really forgotten this? Have you forgotten why we exist? Almost like a parent would do uh, with a child. Like, I know that you know what I'm about to tell you. Because uh, I know I've told it to you before. In fact, I know I've told it to you repeatedly. And I've written it down for you. Uh, I know you know this. But you're not living like you know this. I know that you know deep down, you, you know that you as a people are God's temple. There are four reasons in these two short verses, 16 and 17, as to why we should have a high view of the church. First, the church is God's temple. That word temple simply um, communicates this is the place where God lives. I don't know if you grew up in the church like I did. I grew up in a small church, a rural church in the country. And so there were old people, older people in my church. And whenever we would run or raise our voices or play tag or do anything, it was, son, don't you know this is the Lord's house? And we don't, we don't do that in the Lord's house, right? There was a little bit of a confusion in some of the churches we grew up in between like the building and the people. So Paul's not talking about the building. Some of those people would really struggle to know that we planted a church in the basement of Booby's Tattoo. Like this is the Lord's house. But not the building. Not the building. The gathered people. 
So the church gathered, but also scattered, because we only spend a little bit of time together as one big happy family every week, right? Just a little bit. We don't lose God's presence. This is why our missional communities are so important. We continue to gather as a family in smaller subsets around the island, and God is present with us there in the same way. So guys, this is God our Father saying, I choose to be present with my gathered people, listen, in a way that I am not present anywhere else. Yes, that includes with you personally alone as an individual. God is saying, I am here with this people in a special way that, I'm not, that I am not present anywhere else or with any one person at any one time. God's temple. Second, Paul, Paul says, kind of repeating, but focusing on a different member of the Trinity, he's, he's talked about God the Father, and now he says the Spirit of God dwells among us. So again, the same idea, the Spirit of God lives here. Now listen, we know, like we know, we know our theology, we know that God is omnipresent, right? Meaning, He is in all places at all times equally. All times. We know that. We also know that every member of God's family enjoys His personal presence. We know that. We know that if we're adopted in, Jesus has given us His Spirit because Jesus is not physically present with us. And we know that God promises, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So we we know that. But here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, the gathered family knows a special presence of God. A particular power of God when we are gathered. A particular life-giving presence that you cannot know and you cannot experience apart from God's family, even if you're one of His kids. It's in the family. It's in the family. So I went deep sea fishing for the first time yesterday. First time I've ever been, and I'm 40, so I should make it like one more time. It was fantastic. It was, it was fantastic. So I came home and I told a few of my sea stories. A few of my friends this morning have asked about my sea stories, and I mean, we were catching fish I can't even show you how big they were. Like, I, got, I got my stories. But I can tell you stories all day long, and I can show you my pictures all day long, but guess what? They're just stories, and they're, not, they're just pictures. You will never know what the ten of us experienced together in a particularly life-giving way as we slayed creatures from the depths of the ocean, and as we as dudes had quality shoulder-to-shoulder time that involved minimal talking. Just lots of good time together with very few words. It's a beautiful beautiful thing but you can't know you can hear about it and you can get a sense of it but the life-giving nature of what we did and shared together belongs only to the people who are gathered there on that boat and that that's it that's kind of what Paul's saying here we all get this right how many of you have uh this year you've you've developed a condition you didn't even know existed before it's called zoom fatigue it's the same thing, like we're, we're done with it. Why? Because you're still looking at the person, you're still hearing the person, but you're not present with the person. And surprise, surprise, it's profoundly different. There is something life-giving and powerful in the presence. And that's what God is saying with His gathered family. And then, so there's this relational piece, and then, and then he sa- Paul says God's temple is holy. That word holy first means just set apart, right? Sounds big, sound, but it's not. It just means... Um, this is, is holy. It's, it's, I'm setting it here because I care, part, care about it. It's, it's my primary mug, and I go to it all the time in this building. It's, just, it's holy to me. I care about it, and it exists for one unique purpose. That's for me to drink from it and for it never to be washed so that the flavor is not ruined. Right? It's holy to me. That's what Paul's saying about the church. God's 
church is holy. We're set apart. The Father views us as sons and daughters. We're His family. Jesus views us as His bride. We have a special position. The Spirit's mission for the family is that every single member of the family will make it all the way home to the Father. And it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon Him. So we're, we're holy. We, we talked about the holiness of the church in our opening. The, the reasons for which we exist. Guys, the reason for the church existing belongs to no other family, no other organization in the history of the world or anywhere on the globe. The church is holy. A beautiful purpose. A life-giving purpose. Now, the word holy also suggests a certain qu- kind of quality. So not just a reason for existing, but kind of a quality to the culture. In other words, our culture is meant to reflect God's character increasingly. Now, we're not perfect, but God is saying that we are holy. We're, we're, we kind of sang this a few moments ago. We're perfect in the eyes of our Father, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So His perfection is our perfection, but as a family, the Spirit is working to grow us up into expressions of that, not only for the fame of our Father, but for the good of the people who exist around our family. Okay, Now, Trust us, functionally, we know we're not perfect. Nobody in this church family is under any pretense that anything here is done perfectly or any person is perfect outside of the work of Jesus. But we know that we're holy. And so then then Paul says this. Listen, this is a verse many of us probably are not very familiar with. If anyone destroys God's temple, which we just learned is not a building, it's a people, what does he say? Whoa. Like, I didn't know that was in there. God will destroy the person that messes with his family. That's what he says. I mean, he can't say it any, any, any more plainly than he did. God says to us, I will destroy the person who destroys my family. Wow. Now, what we need to know about that is God is not putting outsiders on notice in that verse as if I need to protect my family from the people outside. It's not what he's doing. It's not what he's doing there. The father has the car pulled over and he's given that little family talk as a father to his kids. This is what it is, guys. The car's pulled over and this is a family talk for the insiders, if you will, to all professed Christians. Guys, it's a warning of judgment, even eternal judgment from the father for those who would act destructively against his holy family. High view of his family. Now, one more thing I want to show you. It's important to note that we can't see it in our English, but it's clear in the original language. All of the U's here, Y-O-U's, the, the U's, they're all plural. So we could say U's guys or y'all or y'all, whatever part of the country you're from. In other words, God is speaking collectively to us. This is not a verse for your coffee mug. This is not a promise that if you get destroyed at work, God is going to destroy the person. Like you can't, you can't cite this verse next time you're getting it handed to you. Like that's no t-shirts, no plaques, no coffee mugs. This is not yours. This is ours. This is a family truth. Guys, we will become who God says we are only as we take this high view of His church. Just to be honest, culturally, we don't have that kind of a view of the church. And by culturally, I don't mean the non-Christian culture, guys. I mean the Christian culture that we have all been living in for a lifetime. We do not view God's family the way that God views His family. We don't have a high view of it like that. And if we don't, then we're delusional if we think that we somehow are this 
this house with a light on in the middle of a dark city. We may think we are, but we're not. It, 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 it flows out of this high view of the church. Now, the church in Corinth needed this warning because they were not living with a high view of God's church. And you see it in the introduction, verses 1 to 4. We saw in verse 3, there is jealousy and strife, Paul says, among you. That word among is really important. That's just Paul saying it's everywhere. It's systemic. It's baked into the cake. So clearly you know they didn't have a high view of the family. They had a high view of themselves and their own preferences. Whenever there's strife and arguing in a church, that's the symptom. If you trace it all the way back, you trace the root all the way back to the heart, the reality is all that strife and arguments are coming from a low view of God's family and an elevated view of self and self-preferences. And that's what's happening. Paul has to say it this way in verse 1, I can't even talk to you as spiritual people. Now, You hear that and you're like, oh, Paul calling their salvation into question? Is that what we're dealing with here? No, he's not. He's absolutely not. And notice, he starts off by calling them brothers. He would not have called them brothers and sisters if they were not in the family. He's he's talking to people who are in the family. But he's saying, I can't talk to you like your family right now because you're not acting like you're in the family at all. You want to think of yourselves as spiritual people, but I I can't talk to you as spiritual people. Now, now, being spiritual is not a special class of, of Christian. Basically, here's what it means to be spiritual. As a follower of Jesus, we're given the Spirit, right? So in a sense, we're all a spiritual people. But to be a spiritual person, to use the language, it doesn't mean that I'm super mature Christian. I can be spiritual and unspiritual in the same day. To be spiritual simply means that I'm submitting to the Spirit's work in my life through the Word, and I'm living obedience to Jesus, following his direction. That's spiritual. That's, that's all that it means. So to be unspiritual is any day that I'm exercising independence on autonomy, out from under the direction of the Spirit, out from under submission to the Word. Now I'm unspiritual. I mean, I can bounce in and out all day long, or I can have long seasons of one or the other. Rather, Paul says, you guys are living like people of the flesh. At best, you're acting like infants in Christ, like brand new Christians. At worst, you're actually acting like outsiders. And he goes on, he said, when you were brand new Christians, I fed you you all milk. I gave you milk, 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 milk. In other words, Paul's saying, I just gave you the gospel, and I rehearsed the gospel with you, and I gave you the gospel again and again and again and again and again. I gave you gospel. You should be growing and healthy by now. It's been several years. Like Paul spent 18 months here, and now he's gone. So it's been years. He said, I should be able to feed you meat, but I can't. Now, again, just one more point of clarification. We're not a cult. Um, We're not Mormons. There aren't like levels of knowledge in this family. There aren't secret pieces of information that you only get like on the inside. And if you wear a certain shirt or you've been uh, baptized by a dead family member or four, like there's none of that stuff's here. That's, that's, That's not, everything's right here out in the open, right? There's nothing secret or special for a special class of Christians. If milk is gospel, meat, think of it this way, is just gospel implications and how the gospels lived out in my life. So we all drink milk all the time, but as we're living under the direction of the Spirit, the meat is we're taking that gospel and applying it to every single complex and complicated area of our lives and lives in the culture. That's the difference between milk and meat. And Paul's like, you can't even, you can't even get into the milk or, or the meat right now. Like, you're not even drinking down this milk. I can't do it because you're living like you're still of the flesh. You have the gospel, but the gospel doesn't have you. It's not forming you at all. You're formed by the culture. And Paul calls that behaving only in a human way or being merely human. Or we would say it this way. They're culture formed and not gospel formed. 
And there were two evidences of that in this chapter, jealousy and strife. Now, jealousy we can think of as more centered around people, right? We see them saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. I'm, I'm from this guy or this guy's my preacher. And then there's strife and strife would be more centered around issues. And believe me, like the rest of 1 Corinthians is like issues driven. It's just Paul responding to one issue after another in the life of the church. I mean, we're going to focus on the people aspect of it today, but trust me, we'll be dealing with lots of issues in the coming weeks. Because there's a lot of potential for strife on issues, not only like neighborhood issues, the issues around us, but also family issues. Like what are some neighborhood issues? Uh, COVID and how you respond to that or how you interpret the particular frago uh, uh, related to your service branch for COVID restrictions and on and on and on. Like we could, we could get a whole bunch of strife going on over that. Masks, no masks, vaccinations, no vaccinations, potential for strife. Um, of course, there's politics, but we won't, we won't go there today. How many of you watched the debate? I mean, you could just sum that up in a word. Strife, right? Strife. That's a pretty accurate representation of our culture and of our churches too, right? A million different things. And then within the family, all kinds of potential for strife. Bible versions, music preferences, um, mode of baptism, secondary theological points, like all that stuff. So we're going to all those places in 1 Corinthians. But Paul's dealing with this people side of things, and he's telling us, guys, when you don't have a high view of the church, when we're not united around Jesus, we will divide over anything. And when we're divided, we are not that city on the hill that Jesus has created us to be. We need a humble view of self and a high view of the church. And so Paul starts out by addressing their view of their leaders, which ultimately would ripple out to their view of themselves. So this, even though Paul's talking about leaders initially, this involves or applies to all people in the life of the church. And so he says, hey, what then is Apollos? What is, what is Paul? And what's the gospel answer to that question, guys, in verse 5? What are they? Who are they? What's the gospel answer? Servants. Who are you? Who's John Ransom? Who, who is any, any follower of Jesus in this room? Humble view of self. Gospel-driven view of self. Servants. We're all servants of Jesus and servants of His family. Imagine how differently our church, to use a cultural term, church shopping would go every time we PCS'd if we just rolled into town with that view of self and view of church. God's church is holy and I, I have to have a high view of it, and I exist as a servant. I think things would change just a little bit. And so now Paul gives us two analogies to show us what it looks like to live with a gospel-formed, high and humble view. He shows us the church is God's field, and then church is God's building. From verses 5 to 9, we look at it as a field. And the field helps us develop a humble view of self and a high view of church in a couple different ways. Uh, let's start with a humble view of self. First of all, in verses 5 to 6, we see that God assigns our roles in the family. Paul had an assigned role. Apollos had an assigned role. Each of us have assigned roles. It says, as the Lord assigned to each. It's personal. God gives a personal assignment to you to serve Him by serving His church. Paul planted, it says, and he did, literally. He started the church from nothing. He spent about 18 months there. And then Apollos watered. He came along behind Paul and watered what was already planted. Now, what does planting and watering require? Like, let's keep that relatable and understandable for us. Uh, for Paul, plant, what would planting have involved? I mean, just let's think about it very practically. He didn't just put up a sign to start a church. We know he didn't do that. It was conversational. He spoke things to people. Like he spoke, so planting 
whatever else it is, cannot be less than speaking gospel to people. Like, that's planting, okay? So that's what Paul did, uh, gospel spoken, but he did it for 18 months, so that would imply some measure of relationship and some measure of time, but then Apollos comes behind him and waters, so if planting is gospel plus time plus relationship, uh, watering would be gospel plus more time plus more relationship plus enduring relational presence and a ton of grace right that's what planting and watering is are there's another way this analogy helps us have a humble view of ourselves look at what verse says verse six says about growth god is responsible for all growth nothing happens unless god gives life now here's a real good dose of humility in verse seven neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything we might say anything special they are something. Paul's saying they're, they're not anything special. Anybody can plant and anybody can water. It's not that those activities are unimportant, but God can and will use anyone. And it's not a competition. Notice this in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. One is not better than the other. They're just different gifts and different appointments from God. So rivalry within a church is absurd. It's absurd. Rivalry between churches is equally absurd. As a church family, we should pray regularly that the other churches on this island like Calvary and Keystone and Coza and Zion and Lighthouse and Maranatha and Neighborhood and a dozen other churches that I didn't just name here, that they would all just excel and be healthy and be cities on a hill and be lights in a dark city and life in cultures of death and prophetic voices for justice and mercy we should desire this there's no competition that's absolutely absurd another another way in which we should be humble check this out in verse 8 god rewards reps not results jesus says you do gospel reps as a church you do the things i call you to do you plant you water you do the reps i do the results Notice what he says, each will receive his wages, that's a reward, according to the results that he produces? No. According to what? His work, his reps. Jesus rewards reps, not results. Guys, we need this word because we live in a culture that absolutely worships results. You guys, most of you work for organizations that absolutely worship and decorates results. It's meant to be radically different in the life of the church, but sadly, we often are no different than our capitalistic and entrepreneurial culture. But Jesus calls us here, be faithful in the reps. You do the reps, I do the results. Jesus does not reward results, guys. He rewards reps. And finally, this analogy gives us a high view of the church. In verse 9, who owns the field? God owns the field. It's His field. Not my church. Not your church. Um... It's his church. It's his field. He just calls us fellow workers, meaning he's the worker and he invites us in to work alongside of him. But, um, and then he says, you're God's field, you're God's building, you're God's church, you are his people. Just reminding over and over again with God in the position of, of the center of attention, if you will. All of this is his. It all belongs to him. This family is his. Take a high view of the family and a humble view of self. We're his servants. We're given a God, we have a God-given role to work alongside our Father for the good of his family. And this high view that the family belongs to him. It has his attention and it has God's personal effort. 
All right, one more analogy. It's that of a building. We see that in verses 10 to 15. A couple different ways that this helps cultivate a humble view of self and a high view of God. Let's start with humility. Notice Paul says, all of this stuff going on anyway, it's all a gift. Verse 10 says that God gives the gift to us of working alongside of Him, but He also gives gifts with which to work. That's what he says, according to the grace. Grace just means gift. That's what that word means. According to the gift of God given to me. You see how Paul calls himself a skilled master builder? You're like, man, it really sounds like Paul's kind of talking himself up a little bit. He's not. Uh, he's not. In fact, Paul existed for the destruction of the church before God radically reoriented his life. And now he's a skilled master builder. Paul would tell you anywhere else he's a normal dude. He's the lowest of the low, least of the least. Anything good that's happened in his life is a result of God's good work. That, and Paul would say that all day long, every day. So all he's saying here is, you, I look like a skilled master builder because of the ridiculous amount of grace that God has poured into my life, these gifts that he's given me so that I can serve him and so that I can build the church. So the opportunity to build is a gift and the skills with which to build are a gift. Paul says, I laid a foundation and now someone else is building on it. So here's another principle to help us be humble. Every Christian since Paul that is invested in the life of the church falls into this category. Who are you? You're not just a servant. You are, congratulations, you're someone else. You're someone else. Like the foundation's laid and there's been 2,000 plus years of someone else's coming along and building on that foundation. Like, let's just be real with this. When the, when the church first started here, who was responsible for leading our ministry to children? I just want one person to be able to name it. Can't do it, can we? we? Really, most of us can't do it. Her name was Ruth. Ruth is long gone. You did not even know she existed. She was just somebody else to you. Well, then somebody else came along. Who was next? It was Crystal, right? But I heard whispers. One or two people in the room know that. Nobody else knows that. Crystal Cirillo was the next person in line. She's done. Now we have someone else. Anybody know who the someone else is? All right, more of us know because she's currently serving. But guess what? Someday, EJ is going to be gone and it'll be who? Someone else. You are all sitting in someone else's seat. They're gone. And you're going to be gone too soon as well. And somebody else is going to be seated there. You will go take someone else's seat somewhere else. God builds the city on a hill through the shoulders on the shoulders and the backs of someone else's servants humble servants who just get after it not for self-fame but for the fame of the father and for the good of people who are not yet rescued in i am someone else and then a high view of church here in this analogy of the building in verse 10 we learn that it matters not only that we build it matters that we build but it also matters how we build paul says let each one take care how he builds on this foundation now first before it's anything else that's a command to build right that's a command to build he says, take care how you build. Imply, the command is implied. You're a follower of Jesus. You're, it means you're a servant. It means you're someone else investing in the life of the church. It just means you're, you're building. You're building. So it's a command. Now, like we did with planting and watering, let's keep building very practical. It's not some high spiritual idea. It's not some, some crazy metaphor that we've got we to get, just use our imaginations for. It's very practical. Building is relational, just like planting and watering. We build by gathering with each other. We build by serving each other. We build by giving to God through the church. We build by participating in the life of missional communities. 
we build the same way we plant and water. Time plus gospel plus sustained relational effort plus shoulder-to-shoulder time on 12-hour-long deep sea fit and all the other things that we do together. It's all relational, enduring relationship plus gospel plus time that is building. And guys, I just want to affirm you as a church for a moment. You absolutely get after the building. Like You gather faithfully. You, as soon as the COVID restrictions were, were done, we, you, you just bounced back. You gather faithfully here and you gather faithfully in MCs. You serve faithfully. I get it. Next door is an absolute zoo. Like We need space. We need space to spread these little human mo- beings out. Like We just <laughs> need to spread them out. Guys, you, ser- you get after it. And you give, guys. I, like This year, every month, while so many churches globally face um, budgets that need to be restrained and pulled back and they just face uh, financial challenges, every month has essentially surpassed the last. We are seeing giving like we've never seen before throughout the pandemic. And even when we were not able to gather together as people, guys, you gave so generously, so generously that we were able to fund two adoptions in our pillar family of churches. And guys, we still have $10,000 in our adoption fund just waiting to be given away. We just funded essentially a $10,000 translation project translating um, gospel-related stuff from English into Japanese for church planting here. They're not in this service. They'll be in the next service, but we are hosting a church planting couple that we support from Tokyo, Joey and Giselle Zarina. We've supported them financially for the last four years. They're exhausted from the hard work in Tokyo, and we gave them a fully funded two-week sabbatical here in Okinawa and a beautiful Airbnb right on the, right on the beach. It would be longer, but they, they've got to go back home. Guys, you were doing that. That's building, and that's planting and watering, and it's, you guys, this is a beautiful, life-giving family to belong to. All right we got to keep pressing. Uh, this command also calls us to a certain quality of work. Notice Paul points out two foundations, or he points out the foundation. That is Jesus. Everything we do is built on who Jesus is and what Jesus says. No other foundation will work for the church. Every other attempt, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how hard we're trying to contextualize to the culture, every other foundation will crumble. Strong enough to be the foundation of the church. And then he talks about two types of materials that we build with. And again, we don't have to get crazy here. He's just trying to give us two types of categories. One category is of value and will last forever. The second category is of little to no value and will not outlast even a single generation. It'll burn up. So the the first category, gold, silver, and precious stones, that would be Jesus plus gospel plus relational time, okay? The second category, which is temporary and of little to no value, wood, hay, straw, that's our world's wisdom and our performance and high view of self and low view of church, and it will crumble. And Paul kind of gives another warning to the family here. He says, hey, listen, um, in the future, everybody's work is going to become clear. Like, that's a little sobering. We don't think about that when we come to church. We hide a lot when we come to church. We naturally veil a lot about ourselves. But Paul's saying, hey, family, uh, when dad comes home from work, right? We've had that talk before. Way down the road, the day will disclose it, meaning in the future, all of our work, whether we've planted or not, watered or not, built or not, and the way in which we've done those things will be tested by God Himself. He says it's going to be revealed by fire. Now, it's not a literal fire. 
because there's not really anything literal to light on fire, because we're not talking about buildings, right? We're talking about people and relationships in the gospel. So there's no literal bonfire going on here. He's talking about the discerning eye of Jesus and judgment of the work. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. One type of work will survive and receive a reward. That's the work that's centered on Jesus plus gospel plus time plus just enduring relational effort, right? Jesus plus gospel. The stuff that will be burned up, well, anything else. I mean, just anything else. And those people will suffer great loss. Well, it's a great loss that he's talking about. It's not loss of salvation. It's not punishment, because notice what he says. Um, though he him, uh, they'll lose everything, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's not talking about losing our salvation. What he's talking about is, is watching a lifetime of work that was not centered on Jesus and his gospel absolutely evaporating and being burned up. Guys, that's a really sobering reality. Like We all just need to sit back and rest on that for a moment, understanding that it is entirely possible to spend a lifetime busy but not actually building. It's entirely possible to come here week in and week out and do all the things that churchy people do and have it be nothing more than busyness and have absolutely none of it be actual building. But even in that mess, God promises His mercy. He says, they're still my kids. I will still pull them out of the, quote, flames and rubble of a wasted life. You still have a good dad. And I'm going to watch a lot of my own life burn up. A lot of John-centered stuff burn up. It's, it's going to happen. But I know in that moment that my father is good and he's still going to be holding me by the hand and he will, to use Paul's language, pull me out of that collapsing rubble um, and that dust. The closing verses call for some serious self-reflection. Verse 18 says, Let no one deceive himself. Guys, that implies that it is very possible to be self-deceived in all of this. Right? The church in Corinth was deceived, but they didn't know it. They, they didn't know it. They thought they were spiritual people, but Paul says you're, you're not spiritual at all. Why? Because strife and arguing were present. So guys, let's just ask the honest question. If strife plus arguing equals unspiritual, how many of us have ongoing, unresolved strife and arguing in our lives right now? That's a symptom of unspirituality, if you will. That's a symptom of not walking according to the Spirit. So maybe we think we're spiritual, but that unresolved strife and arguing would actually tell the truth on us. They thought they were wise, but they were not, and they were not able, because they were not able to constructively process gospel implications in life. And here's what I mean. A lot of us like the phrase or the slogan, just preach gospel. We'll talk gospel all day long. But the minute that we start trying to apply gospel to very real cultural things, like just stuff in my own heart. Let's start with stuff in my own heart, like um, whatever, whatever sin or rebel tendency I have going on. Once it gets personal, or once it gets personal in a culture, in the culture, in a way that I don't like, like talking about racism or other cultural things, we we lose our minds, right? Maybe we're not actually as wise or spiritual as we think that we are, because we'll talk gospel all day long, but the minute it gets personal, man, those emotions just really rise, don't they? They thought they were building, but they weren't. Paul says they were just busy. Well, guys, we're busy. We're really busy. And so the gospel formed solution here. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, turn away from our cultural metrics of success and daily turn to Jesus, his gospel. Slow the time down and invest in relationship. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Wendell Berry, wrote, wrote this. He said, there was a day... 
when the road neither comes nor goes, and the way is not a way, but a place. Guys, a busy life is focused on the roads which come and go. And we are just constantly coming and going, and we're looking for more roads to come and go on. A gospel-formed life is a life that slows down enough on purpose to be able to invest in a place, and specifically the people in that place. Now Paul concludes here where he began chapter 3. He says, just as a reminder, guys, no more of this boasting in any man. Like that was a big part of their problem. They were boasting in different pastors and different leaders, just like their culture would do. That, That shows a low view of the church and a high view of self which makes us indistinguishable from the culture around us. When we brag more on a certain Christian or popular speaker or popular ministry than we actually do Jesus Himself, we are revealing a profound immaturity in our own, in our own hearts. And we will become divided as a family in an already divided city, offering no light and no life. Instead, Paul would say, brag on the better words and works of Jesus. And that's how he finishes. Notice his final sentence of the chapter is, you are Christ's and Christ is God. So in other words, in Christ, we all as a family belong to God. We're His. And then he says, because of that truth, all things are yours anyway. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they belong to you. In other words, you don't belong to a popular preacher, podcaster, or teacher like some pathetic I'm sorry, like some groupie, um, which is how I spent most of my life, right? We go through these seasons of I belong to this person or I belong to that person. Paul says they belong to the community. They all of them exist for my fame and for the so we don't belong to these popular people. God just gifts certain people in amazing ways and he makes them belong to the community for his fame and our good. And then he says the world or the world or life or death or the present or future. Do you see these words, right? All of these things are yours, the implication being in Christ. In other words, I have inherited everything that I need for life in Jesus. There's nothing I don't need. There's nothing I need that I don't have in Christ. I have it all. Paul again says, listen, high view of church, God's family, humble view of self. I would invite you to join me this morning in praying that God would cultivate this posture not only in our own hearts, but in the, in the life of our church, that we would be a united family in a fractured city as we take a high view of the church and a humble view of, of self. And let me just close with this. Remember that, that sobering statement from verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Uh, let me just point one thing out about the author who wrote that. We know him as Paul, but before he was Paul, who was he? Saul, what was Saul doing? Actively destroying the church. Actively destroying God's temple. Saul deserved to be destroyed by God for the way he treated God's holy family. Enter the gospel. And instead of destroying Saul, God destroyed Jesus in Saul's place. Saul instead received adoption into the very family that he was destroying. Rather than taking his hand in, ju- in judgment and punishment, Jesus took Paul's hand in love as a father to a son. Guys, the gospel levels the ground. Like Saul, we all deserve judgment. But in Jesus, the Father kindly offers us mercy. And His mercy always triumphs over judgment. Always. David, you want to come? And uh, David's going to come. And as one of our pastors, he's going to lead us in a prayer of confession. 
And I would encourage you to join with David as he prays, just however God has led you in this time to confess your own rebel tendencies. David will lead us in that and then will lead us to uh, celebrate communion together.